Hey, welcome to the Seattle Psychiatrist Interview Series. This educational series is brought to you by Seattle Anxiety Specialists. Located in downtown Seattle, our psychiatrists and therapists specialize in treating anxiety, anxiety disorders, and other mental health issues that commonly lead to anxiety. For a full list of our services, as well as access to our multitude of online resources, check us out online at seattleanxiety.com. Hi, thank you so much for joining us today on this installment of the Seattle Psychiatrist Interview Series. My name is Anna Kiesmetter, and I'm a research intern at Seattle Anxiety Specialists. I'd like to welcome today with us the trauma psychotherapist, Amanda Ann Gregory. Amanda is a trauma psychotherapist, national speaker, and author. She holds licenses in the states of Illinois, Texas, and Missouri, as well as an EMDR, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing certification, and a national counselor certification. Amanda has provided individual, group, and family therapy for more than a dozen years in outpatient and residential settings, and is currently in private practice in Chicago. Her work has appeared in Psychology Today, Psychotherapy Networker, Happyful Magazine, Addiction Professional, and other magazines. Amanda has also served as a presenter for clinical conferences, employee trainings, and community events, and has spoken for the American Counseling Association, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, the Missouri Department of Mental Health, the Missouri School Counselor Association, Prevent Child Abuse Illinois, and the Missouri Association of Marriage and Family Therapy. So before we get started, um, could you please tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you came to work as a trauma psychotherapist? Yes, so how I came to work in trauma was actually by accident. My very first job out of graduate school was at a very specialized residential treatment center for teenagers, which specialized in treating developmental trauma, which especially at that time really wasn't well known. And it's trauma that basically occurs in childhood over a period of pivotal development. And when I was there, I absolutely loved it. I loved working with, with trauma survivors and I, I didn't want to leave it. And so I, I sort of took those skills into the outpatient world in community mental health um, centers. Now I'm in a group practice. And so this is a population that I just kind of fell into working with. And later, honestly, you know, realizing that I'm also um, a developmental trauma survivor. And so really feeling that, you know, I'm connected to this population, I was able to do my own work, you know, my own trauma treatment, which is a big part of, of being a trauma clinician. And so really, it's kind of twofold. It's, it's a wonderful population to work with. And also, I consider them my people, you know, my, my tribe, um, so to speak. Yeah, and I just always feel grateful to be able to do this work. That's really beautiful. Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, so what does this therapy generally look like for you? And can you say that again? Yeah. Um, so what does uh, therapy generally look like for you as a trauma therapist? Right. So dealing with uh, trauma, it's a little bit different sometimes from other types of therapies. When we think of therapy, sometimes we automatically think of talk therapy, you know, which is typically kind of cognitive behavioral therapy. But with trauma work, it's a bit different because you have to bring in other interventions to address those earlier developing parts of the brain. And so therapy for me really depends upon the trauma survivor, what they've already been exposed 
to what work maybe they've already done, or is this their very first time participating in treatment? I tend to combine a lot of methods. So I'm attachment-based. So there's a big focus on the relationship with the client and creating that safety to start. And I bring in a lot of interventions to help the brain, such as EMDR, you know, somatic experiencing, maybe even at times play therapy, animal-assisted therapy, internal family systems. It's really eclectic depending upon what the client needs, but it does look a little bit different at times from what, you know, people may think of as, as sort of that talk on the couch type of therapy. That's really interesting. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about like how it differs from the like talk therapy versus um, like it sounds like it's a little bit more like hands-on for like the things that you do. Is that right? Yes, it could it could definitely be more hands-on and a bit more interactive. So here's an example. Let's say I'm working with a client about, let's just say one, you know, experience that they've had that they've really kind of kept with them. It's really blocked them in areas of their life. And we would call that trauma. Some people, if they're working with a client, they may want to talk through it. They may want them maybe to create a narrative, you know, of their experience, which, which can be wonderful. My sort of type of therapy is bringing more things, for example, the body. You know, when you recall that memory, what do you notice in your body? you know, connecting with that sensation, helping that sensation to process. With EMDR, we do a lot of that bilateral stimulation to desensitize the actual impacts of those experience and reprocess adaptable core beliefs. So instead of the client telling me what happened and going through the the story of it, I might move their eyes, you know, back and forth, back and forth. I may have them hold on to these vibrating tactiles that go back and forth, back and forth in their hands. And that's what's kind of helping them process. And I'm going to help them along. You know, I'm going to be right there. So it's definitely not, you know, hands off. But it does does tend to be a bit more experiential in nature. I see. Yeah, thank you for explaining that. Awesome. Um, okay, so now that we've gotten to the, a little bit about you and the therapy work that you do, um, today kind of like to address a topic on a lot of our minds. Um, So on June 24th, 2022, the Supreme Court overturned its Roe v. Wade decision in the U.S., um, ruling that the right to an abortion is not protected under federal law and allocating jurisdiction over abortions to the states. Um, Following that ruling, abortion has become or will become illegal in over a dozen states whose legislatures had passed automatic trigger bans, as reported by the New York Times. Um, So in a recent article that you wrote, Um, You write that this ruling is particularly harmful to trauma survivors. So I'm wondering, like, what are the implications of this ruling on survivors' physical and mental health? Yes. So the the issue about this ruling that tends to threaten trauma survivors is it really does threaten that sense of safety. And if we can just use that as a foundation, just, just safety. And if we look at trauma, trauma is usually created by an experience or a bunch of experiences where that safety wasn't there, or perhaps that agency or autonomy wasn't there. And that's created this response. So if we take these folks who've had those experiences, and then we have something like this happen, which does strip people of that agency and that autonomy, that does not feel safe. And so basically what we're asking now is trauma survivors to try to heal, try to recover, try to not offend others, you know, because of their trauma, which at times has happened. We want them to do this work, but we're not going to provide that safety. It's kind of like you, you get healed, you do best, but 
but we're going to take some of that safety away. And in trauma treatment, any trauma therapist knows that doesn't work. You know, there has to be maybe not 100% safety, but some foundation of safety for trauma survivors to be able to work on this and to be able to really move past surviving to thriving. And this ruling makes that so much more difficult because it really does strip that safety and you and really specifying that. And I'll just use the word agency, taking away that agency, that bodily agency, that relational agency, which directly has a negative impact on mental health. Right. Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, and here at Seattle Anxiety, we focus a lot on anxiety disorders. So I'm wondering, like, with this implications of this ruling on um, trauma survivors, how this impacts anxiety disorders or any like anxiety symptoms in survivors? Sure. So if we look at anxiety, you know, we just take trauma out of it for a second. Trauma is anxiety. You know, they're very much mixed up. But if someone, let's say, has a generalized anxiety disorder, you know, and they're they're in this world, this is definitely going to create some anxiety because it's, well, now, you know, my choices are restricted. You know, now I may have to worry about this and that. And even if you feel like it doesn't apply to you, you know, for example, if you are someone capable of giving birth, you have no don't want to do that at all, don't want to even be involved in that, knowing that somebody else is restricted, you know, in some capacity and their choices could make you really feel unsafe. And it could lead to a lot of additional worrying, you know, folks who experience anxiety tend to struggle with racing thoughts, worrying issues like that. And this could really infiltrate that and actually make that um, significantly worse. That makes sense. Um, and then on like the physical health aspect, I know you write also a little bit about how like the continued, um, the continuation of trauma of often being more exposed to the um, source of the trauma. If you are put in a place where um, like you're not, like, you're forced to carry a pregnancy to term. Uh, could you talk a little bit more about that and like the continuation of that trauma? Right. So if we go back to safety and look at that agency, you know, being stripped, it's like you're you're suspecting to be back in that situation again, or you already feel like you're back in it. And so actually, you know, I believe the United Nations actually believes that forcing um, a woman to carry a pregnancy is is a crime against humanity. And so I think that's interesting that they have that set and then yet we have that overturned here. And if you just kind of think about the, the, the restriction of that, and if we look at relational trauma, Okay, if somebody has a relationship, it could be with a parent, it could be with a romantic partner, it could even be with a friend or a community member, and that relationship is not safe. Let's say it's toxic. Let's say there's abuse involved. What do we tell these people as a society? We say, get out, right? In the relationship, have some boundaries, get out. Okay, but but what if certain decisions made by other people are forcing you to stay in that relationship in some capacity, right? There are states that a rapist can sue for parental rights of a child. And that means that you will need to have a relationship with this person in some capacity going forward. And so you can't just get out. You can't just have these boundaries because that's very much restricted. And so let's say, let's just take rape out of it for, for a second. Let's say you're in a relationship and, you know, it is abusive and you get pregnant. Would you be required to carry that child to term? You know, and is that going to hold you to that other person for at least 18 
19, 20 years, maybe the rest of your life, honestly, that's, is that going to help you? Or is that going to traumatize you? Or is that actually going to feed, you know, more of those trauma responses? And it will, you know, thing about trauma is it compacts upon itself. It's very rare just to have this one event. Now, some people do one traumatic event that, that, you know, I need to address, but when it comes to developmental trauma or complex trauma, it compacts, you know, it's, it's a series of these progressive experiences. And what we sometimes see with trauma survivors is their old coping mechanisms, what they needed to do to survive. They keep doing it into adulthood. They just keep doing it. And so this can create situations for folks to continue to have that trauma compacted upon itself. Mm, right. Yeah, that's very important. Um, so you also write about the implications of this ruling on Western use and uh, to children about consent and bodily autonomy. Um, would you be able to tell us a little bit more about how this ruling affects childhood development? Sure. So a couple of ways. One, I'll talk about the children being around the adults and then just, just the children. And so yeah. When adults don't feel safe, when adults don't feel like they have a sense of agency, children pick up on that. They do. And we, we try to keep that from them. You know, we try to protect them. But we have to understand that we're actually putting that off and all this nonverbal communication all the time. And children constantly pick up on that. So when a, when a child is with an adult who, let's say, is their primary attachment figure and the adult is struggling, then the child's going to pick up on that in some capacity. And so now we have, you know, parents who may not feel as safe as they did, you know, before this was overturned. And we have those children in the home who are going to also, you know, pick up on that. And if you think of it from a child's point of view, I'm requiring, I'm really relying on this adult or this set of adults or me multiple adults to keep me safe. But if they're struggling, if they don't feel safe, how are they going to keep me safe? And these aren't words that are spoken. It's, it's very nonverbal. So that's one thing that may negatively impact children. Second is, you know, as some cultures, we tend to struggle at times with teaching children about bodily agency and consent. Um, sometimes we will do these things of give me a hug, give me a kiss, go hug grandma, go do it. You know, we send those messages, which isn't great. Because uh, it doesn't really line up with what we say. And hey, if anybody touches you, you need to tell us. These are the places that they can't touch. You know, we have to provide that education. But then somebody in your family or somebody that your parents trust can just kind of do whatever they want. You know, and you have to you have to consent to that. So we do tend to send some mixed messages to children, I think. And there is a movement in child psychology to really encourage parents to request children to provide physical intimacy if they would like. So for example, would you like to hug grandma? You know, is that something you would like to do? Or asking a child, can I give you a kiss? You know, things like that could actually build up more of that sense of teaching a child, this is your body. You know, yes, within reason, some adults may be making some medical decisions or things like that for you, but I'm going to expose you to the fact that this is your body. You get to decide what you do with your body. You get to decide who touches it, who doesn't touch your body. Um, and those messages can be pretty mixed. And now we're in this society with this um, Roe versus Wade being overturned, which, well, now what are we telling children? Are we telling children that only the boys have controls over their body, you know, what, where is that line there between we're trying to teach them to be safe, but then we're not providing this sort of global safety or this national safety for them. So for children, very, very confusing. 
Right, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so still on the topic of children, so you've written another piece on how to talk to children about the experience of growing up in the era of school shootings um, in light of the mass shooting in Uvalde, Texas. So I was wondering if we could kind of relate this a little bit to this question and think about like, how would you approach conversations with children about abortion rights? Right. So when it comes with these these big, you know, national events, it could be very intimidating for us to talk to children about that and to know what to do, whether if it's a school shooting or, you know, a decision being overturned that really impacts us and them. I, you know, I always tell parents, start with curiosity. Don't assume a thing. Sometimes we come to children and we assume they know nothing. And then we get all this information about things they've heard. And of course, in our digital age, it's just one click away for them to find all of this information, even very small children know how to do that. So we don't know what information they've already been exposed to. So the first thing I tell parents is just be curious, you know, approach the conversation with calmness, you know, just very gentle and just be curious. Hey, what have you heard about this? What do you know about this? You know, what are their friends saying? Just be very curious and to listen first. We want to jump in. We want to give insights and advice. And sometimes, especially if a child reports not feeling safe, we want to fix it. You know, we'd be like, you're safe. I'm going to keep you safe. It's not going to happen to you. Well, hold on. Let's listen first. Do they have any concerns? Do they not feel safe? Do they have any questions? And then really validating. What are they going through? If a child is confused about this, validate that. Absolutely, it's confusing. This is a really tough thing to understand. If a child doesn't feel safe, validate that. If a child doesn't care, they're just like, eh, I don't, I don't really care about that. Okay, you know, validate that and acknowledge that. And notice that there's so many steps before we get to actually implementing or, or kind of speaking. You know, we're being curious, we're listening, we're validating. Then I think if we need to, we can move into problem solving. You know, we can move into providing them maybe some education or some information, but not before we kind of go through all those steps because that really opens up the line of communication and it keeps it open. Because things like this, whether if it's a school shooting or Roe versus, Ro versus Wade, it's not going to go away. You know, these things are going to keep happening. They're going to keep developing. So with kids, we really want to keep that line of communication open. We want them to know it's safe to come to me. It's safe to talk about this. Thank you for that. I think that's going to be really helpful for parent listeners. Um, so I'm also wondering, like, what do you think that the mental health community and psychotherapy can do to help survivors post row? Yes, there's there's a couple of things. Um, first off, when it comes to mental health providers, and I'm sure they are already facing this, it's so important to allow, you know, clients, uh, members of your family, you know, people in the community, um, really a safe space to, to process this. And that's really kind of exploring their thoughts and feelings related to this. Um, sometimes we, we want to shut that down. You know, we want to move people over here, over here. But what if we just step back and we just allowed them to process? There were quite a few clients the next day and this week 
um, in my sessions with them that they needed that time. They needed that space. And as a clinician, it may be tempting to say, whoa, hold on. This isn't what we're working on. We're working on your trauma or we're working on this or that. Let's let's focus on that. No, you can't. You, you have to kind of address what's happening in their lives here and now to not only support the relationship you have with them, but free them up, you know, get these wheels going, get that processing going. And when it comes to trauma survivors, we can't pick and choose. We can't say, okay, well, this is something going on now. Let's focus on your past. It's interweaving. You know, it all kind of comes together. So I think it's really important to give the people in our lives the time and the space to really explore this. And th- that can be really difficult. And again, when it kind of putting this to members of the community, it's it's the same thing. You know, we're all going through this together. It, and it's regardless of if you agree with the decision or if you don't agree with the decision. I think this is really stressful for everybody. And I think when we provide those safe places for people to explore that, it's one of the best things that we can do. Yeah, thank you. I think that's very important. Um, So with that, um, do you have any like final thoughts or insights that you'd like to impart to our audience, the Roe v. Wade decision or about um, children or school shootings, anything that you'd like to talk about? Yeah, I do have one more point. This might be a little controversial, but this isn't political. You know, if you really take a step back and look at it, you know, whether it's road versus Wade, whether if it's the war in Ukraine, you know, whether if it's a school shooting, it's not political. And I I think we sometimes use that as a mask or a band-aid to hide these things. And as a clinician, you know, I had people reach out to me and say, thank you so much for just talking about this, for just writing about this, because we don't really see this from a whole lot of clinicians. And that that kind of shocked me. And I saw just online and in social media, there was this movement to try to get um, counselors, therapists, social workers to stop talking about this. People were saying, this is political. You need to just treat people. You need to keep this, you know, out of the conversation but that doesn't work so well. You know, we don't, we don't live in a vacuum. And if we are devoting our lives to treating these folks and helping them, then it's very difficult to stay quiet when things happen that we know is going to have a direct negative impact upon them and could very easily sabotage treatment and make it so much more difficult. Um, and so I, I did hesitate before writing that article that you read or even even doing this interview. You know, there were some people that said, well, you're not going to get certain clients or this and that. And I was like, I get that. You know, that's a risk. But I can't pretend that it doesn't impact the same people that I'm trying to help. And so I guess I would say, you know, that if something is going on that impacts your clients, think about that. You know, do I do I want to say something? Do I want to to advocate? You know, does that feel right for me? And if not, simply allowing your clients or the people in your life that space to to process that and process that with you might be another good option. But when it comes to these events that cause trauma in folks that really perpetuates trauma, it's not political. Not anymore. Right. Thank you. I think that's so important. Um, and thank you so much for everything that you've like talked with us today about. Um, I think you have a very powerful message and it's really important at this time to have that. Um, so we wish you the best and hope to have you back for another interview in the future. Um, 
thank you again for coming. Um, and that'll conclude this installment of the Psychiatrist interview series. Um, thank you all so much for listening and we hope that you'll tune in next time. <laughs>